If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 16. And before I get into my sermon, let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you would like to be rich? All right, let me see a show of hands. How many of you would like to be rich? Some of you, this has got to be a trick question. It's not a trick question. How many of you want to be rich? All right, come on. You're a bunch of liars out there. I know. All right. I, I'll admit, I've, I've had that desire a time or two in my life. In fact, I can, I can even recall times where I've said to the Lord, God, you know, if you'll bless me with, uh, you know, maybe I'll uh, write a best-selling book and become a millionaire or something. I, I promise Jesus I will still preach faithfully at Lakes Free. I'm just going to spend Monday through Friday over in Maui and then just fly back and forth to do my preaching, right? But I, I think part of the reason God hasn't blessed me with riches yet is because he knows I probably can't handle it. So, But uh, it's an interesting question to think about. And And it's interesting, I saw this week a recent Gallup poll cited that although only 2% of Americans would describe themselves as rich, 31% said that they thought it was very likely that one day they would be rich. Now that number actually jumped to 51% for 18 to 29 year olds. We have a lot of optimistic young people in our nation apparently. But interestingly, that number plunged to a sobering 8% for Americans 65 and older. Will you be rich one day? You know, it's an interesting question to think about, you know, our view of riches. And we're going to talk about this this morning in Luke chapter 16, as Jesus has uh, a number of profound things to teach us about money and wealth and possessions. One of, the, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got when it came to riches and money and, and possessions is I remember in college, one of my professors told me, Jason, it's okay to climb the ladder of success. Just make sure the ladder's leaning against the right wall. And, uh, you know, that, that stuck with me my whole life. There's nothing wrong with with doing well in life. There's nothing wrong with with making a good living and enjoying the fruits of your labor. But the question is, where are your heart's priorities? And and are your heart's priorities in line with Christ and and his kingdom and his pursuits? And so so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to spend some time looking at a passage where Jesus has some really powerful things to teach us about money. And, And Jesus spoke a lot about money. In fact, not just Jesus, but throughout the whole Bible, you'll find over 2,000 verses dealing with money. Now, a lot of people, you know, they criticize the church and they say, well, man, the church is always talking about money. Well, we talk about money because the Bible talks about money. And, And God has a lot to say about money. And it's not that God's obsessed with money, but it's God knows that we have the temptation to become obsessed with money. And so this is an area that he knows is important for us to check our hearts on on a regular basis. And so money is a very big deal to God. And we're going to see that this morning in our passage. The question really is, what are the priorities of our hearts? And and as our priorities about material stuff and possessions and the accumulation of wealth, or, or are our priorities in line with God's priorities and his kingdom values? Now, I want to be very clear on this this morning as we talk about money and resources and wealth and stewardship. Understand this, friends. Money in and of itself isn't a bad thing. All right? And as I said a moment ago, working hard, earning a good living, enjoying the fruits of your labor, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But what we're going to find this morning in our passage is that Jesus offers us an opportunity to live for so much more than just possessions that will eventually be worthless to you. 
Okay, and make no mistake about it, friends. Your material stuff is ultimately going to be meaningless to you. I've had the privilege over my 20-some years of ministry now to spend countless hours with people as they lay in their hospice beds waiting to go home to meet the Lord. You know, it's very interesting what you see when you go into a room with an individual who knows that they're in their final days or final hours. You know, I'll tell you what you don't find in those hospice rooms. You don't find bank account statements. You don't find copies of the stock report. You don't find issues of Money Magazine. You don't see any of that. What you find in those hospice rooms as people are experiencing their final hours in this world, what you'll find are wedding rings that they're holding on to. You'll see pictures on the wall of families, family members, and drawings from their grandkids. You'll see the Bible on the bedside table next to them. You see, when you come to your final days, your final hours, friends, it's not the material stuff of this world that you're going to treasure. It's the things that have eternal value. It'll be your loved ones. It'll be your family. It'll be your kingdom priorities, the word of God and and the hope of the gospel. Those are the things that you're going to treasure. Jesus offers us an opportunity to experience true wealth, lasting wealth. And true wealth, friends, isn't about the accumulation of the most stuff. True wealth is found in embracing and in living for God's kingdom priorities. Now, now this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that, in all honesty, it's one of the most challenging passages in the Bible. Uh, Certainly one of Jesus' most challenging passages. And and it's challenging because what we find here is a parable that, uh, on first reading, to a a lot of Christians, we kind of scratch our heads and say, this doesn't even sound like Jesus talking here. Right? And, and so this parable is sort of a curious parable, and it takes some explaining. So we're going to do our best to do that for us. But, but it's not just that the parable is somewhat difficult to interpret, but the entire context of this passage, it just seems like there's some things that are disjointed here. But what we're going to find is that they actually really fit together really well. You just have to kind of piece it together. So we're going to do that. But it's also a challenging message, not only because of the interpretation of it, but, but because it deals with some challenging subjects. Uh, It talks about money and and our faithful stewardship of money. It it talks about Jesus and his authority over all areas of our lives. And and there's even a verse that Jesus slips in talking about marriage and divorce. Now, now some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, great, man, I picked a great Sunday to come to church, right? Pastor Jason's going to make me feel guilty about my money and my marriage, all right? That's not what this is about. Okay? We're a church that's grounded in truth. We believe in the Word of God. We preach the Word of God page by page, verse by verse, section by section. All right? When we come to a difficult passage, we're not going to just jump right over it and pretend it doesn't exist. God has truth to teach us here. And so we're going to take this passage as seriously as we took the passage of the prodigal son and the story of the loving father last week. All right? We're going to honor all of God's Word, even the hard stuff. And what we're going to find in our passage this morning is while it might be somewhat difficult, we're going to find actually three keys here, three keys from Jesus for unlocking true wealth. And I'll tell you something, if you'll embrace these teachings, if you'll put them into practice in your own life, what you'll discover are are some great secrets to being truly rich. Okay, that's what we're going to look at this morning, how to be truly rich. And and, and the first secret to being truly rich that we find in our passage this morning, Jesus tells us to invest in eternity. 
He tells us to invest in eternity. Let's read this first section of our passage together, verses 1 through 13. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked a second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Jesus then says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, now, this is just a curious parable, right? I mean, at first reading, it seems like Jesus is commending this dishonest manager and his, his shady practices. But, but what we have to understand is parables are never supposed to be interpreted literally as if every point in the story has some divine meaning for us to apply to our lives. Sometimes they're just stories. And the point of this parable is not that Jesus is trying to commend the shady business practices of this dishonest manager, but what Jesus is commending to us is the shrewdness of this manager in recognizing that he had to make some financial choices to invest in his future. And so Jesus says the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. In other words, this business manager, even though he was dishonest, he was very shrewd in making sure he was setting himself up to be protected for his future, right? I'm losing my job. What am I going to do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to cancel all my master's debts. And then when I'm laid off, these people are going to welcome me into their homes. They're going to take care of me. They're going to pat me on the back because I just helped them out. So they'll help me out. Okay, Jesus isn't commending his dishonesty. He's commending the shrewdness in his use of his material possessions in order to set himself up for the future. And in the same way, what we're going to see here is Jesus calls us as his kingdom people to be kingdom shrewd with the use of our finances. He wants us, too, to be thinking, how can we take the resources we've been given and use them for the best purposes in light of eternity? God is calling us to be kingdom shrewd here. And so what we're going to find here, Jesus actually gives us three lessons on money. Let's read the rest of this passage together. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So after telling this parable, Jesus gives us three lessons on how we can be kingdom shrewd with our resources, with our money. And the first of the three lessons that Jesus shares with us here is he says that we need to use our money to make kingdom friends. 
In verse 9, Jesus says, Use your money to make kingdom friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, now what is Jesus getting at here? Jesus is encouraging us here to invest in eternity, to use our resources for the sake of the gospel, to use our money and our income to help bring lost people to Jesus Christ so that one day when we enter heaven, we'll be welcomed and met by people who are there because we made a sacrificial offering financially that helped them hear the gospel so that they could receive Jesus and be in heaven themselves one day. Jesus is saying, look, invest in things that will help you make kingdom friends. That's what he's getting at here. And and what an incredible thought. You know, when you think about the, the opportunities that we have to use our wealth to make a kingdom impact, to share the gospel with people who do not know Jesus. You know, I I think of some of the missionaries I've supported over the years, right? And, you know, someday I'm going to stand in heaven and I'm going to meet people in heaven from Panama who are there because I chose to support a missionary family from our church who's doing gospel work in the nation of Panama. I can't go to Panama. I can't do that work. But you know what? I can support them financially and make an eternal investment that will go towards sharing the gospel with lost people there who one day I'm going to meet in heaven and they're going to welcome me into eternal dwellings and they're going to say, Jason, I'm here because you supported that family who came as missionaries from your church. That's what Jesus is getting at. How cool is that to think about? You know, our church, for example, when we enter heaven, friends, Lakes Free Church, you're going to be welcomed by people you don't even know today, but they're going to be there in heaven because this church made eternal investments in them. I, I think of some of the different people groups we've worked with in ministry over the years. Like, you know, we, we work with an unreached people group over in China. I, I won't say their name for security reasons, but, but we've been supporting mission efforts with an unreached people group in China for 20-plus years here at Lakes Free. Some of you guys have been over there. Diane Shimaleski, one of our missionaries recently retired, spent her career working amongst these people. We supported that work financially. And one day we're going to be in heaven and we're going to meet people in heaven, Chinese people in heaven that we don't know today. And they're going to say to us, you know what? You called us an unreached people group, but we weren't unreached because you sent people. You gave your money. You made an investment. And they came and they brought the gospel to us and they reached us. And we put our trust in Jesus. And we're going to meet these friends one day, and they're going to welcome us into our eternal dwellings with them in heaven. What an incredible thought. You know, I think of our our friends down in Guatemala, Pastor Obispo and the people of Kiakish. Some of you have been down there and, and, and met these people. Again, we've made ongoing financial investments as a church in this place because we believe that we are investing in eternal purposes by supporting the work down there. And one day we're going to be welcomed into eternity and we're going to meet kingdom friends from Guatemala who are in a relationship with Jesus because we made that investment in their lives. We had a mission team just this last week return from serving down in Corpus Christi, Texas, working on the Hurricane Harvey relief. They were doing that of their own resources. They spent their own money. They took their own time off of work. They went down to Corpus Christi and made a kingdom investment And in doing that, they made eternal friends who they're going to see in heaven one day because of their sacrificial choice to go and serve the Lord. Friends, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Invest in eternal things. Use your money to make kingdom friends. The famous English missionary C.T. Studd, he said, Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, how are you investing your money? Are you making kingdom friends? The second lesson Jesus shares here with us on money in verses 10 through 12, he tells us to be faithful with worldly wealth, and God will entrust you with even greater riches. Be faithful with worldly wealth, and God will entrust you with greater riches. We've all heard stories over the years of these rock bands and pop music stars that make these like ludicrous requests when they go to concert venues. You know, they, they want their green room set up a certain way. They got to have a couch or a bed. They got to have certain food items and, and they don't want other kinds of items in there. They got to have just, they got to have, you know, they got to have makeup and a certain kind of makeup, right? And we hear these ludicrous requests. One of the original crazy requests was from a band named Van Halen. Some of you guys know Van Halen back in the 1980s. Van Halen was ridiculed in the media because it was found out that in their concert rider that they would send ahead to concert venues, they requested a bowl of M&Ms in their dressing room, but they wanted all the brown M&Ms picked out of the bowl. And, and, and when the media found out about this, they were just criticized like crazy. I mean, how arrogant are these guys to you know, claim they want M&Ms, but they got to have all the brown ones removed? Well, David Lee Roth, who was the lead singer of Van Halen, in an interview, he actually said that they actually had a very intentional purpose for making that request. He went on to say that the reason we asked those concert venues to take out the brown M&Ms is because we knew when we showed up at the concert venue, if the brown M&Ms were missing, we could trust that the venue had probably taken care of the bigger request that we had made as well. But if we discovered the brown M&Ms were still in the bowl... We knew that if they weren't faithful in the little details, we sure better check out the bigger picture. Did they set up the stage right? Did they set up the sound system right? And he said, you'd be surprised how many times we discovered concert venues where they weren't faithful with the brown M&Ms, and we'd go and we'd find out that they didn't put the stage together correctly. It would have caused a disaster in the concert. People would have died. Friends, in the very same way, God has entrusted us as stewards of his money. And it is his money. You know that, right? Okay, make no mistake about it. It's not your money. It's God's money. Everything in the universe belongs to God. We are simply stewards of the resources he's entrusted us with. And the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that when we're faithful with the money God entrusts us with, God will entrust us with even greater riches. And sometimes those greater riches might be greater material wealth. Sometimes that might be greater influence or authority. And sometimes that might mean greater spiritual opportunity. Okay, but God will bless you and entrust you with greater riches if you're faithful with what he's given you. It's very interesting. When I first came here as a pastor at Lakes Free uh, eight and a half years ago, I was having lunch one afternoon up, at, up in town at one of our local uh, dining establishments. And a waitress there, uh, so we started talking, and she found out that I was a new pastor here at Lakes Free Church. And it was very interesting, her comment when she found that out. She said, oh, that's the rich people church. You guys know you go to the rich people church, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, I thought about that many times over the years, and it's always just kind of bugged me, right? Like, like, is that really what people think? Like, this is the rich people church? And, and as I thought about that some more, I've come to see over the last eight and a half years here, you know what? We are the rich people church. We are rich. We're rich in people who are generous with their resources for the sake of the kingdom. 
We're rich in people who have embraced God's kingdom priorities and have made the sacrificial commitment to use their wealth to honor Jesus and to advance the gospel and the kingdom here in Lindstrom and all over the world. So if you want to accuse us of being rich with those kind of people, well, absolutely, we are rich. We're incredibly blessed. Because we have faithful people in this church who give, not out of obligation, not out of a sense of hoping that God will give them something in return. We have hundreds of people who sacrificially give because they know it's an act of worship, and the Lord uses that to reach people for the sake of the kingdom. What an incredible thing that is, friends. And I just want to thank you as your pastor for your faithfulness in giving to the ministry here at Lakes Free. All right? We're not one of those churches that's going to harp on money all the time and you know, make, you know, implore you to give and give. That's not what we're about. But we will teach you the faithful requirement of Scripture to give as an act of worship. Because this stuff we've been blessed with, it's not our stuff. It's God's stuff. We're just stewards of it. And as long as we keep that priority in order, God will continue to bless this church. I, let, let me just share something. Do you guys realize that in, in, in roughly three years, we're going to have all the mortgages paid off for Lakes Free Church, all of our buildings, in about three years? That's incredible. Two million plus dollars. Can you imagine, friends, what we're going to be able to accomplish for the sake of the kingdom when we have those resources freed up? More ministry, more lost people reach, more outreach into the community? Friends, that happens when a group of people embrace the kingdom vision that our money is not our money, it's God's money, and we're going to use it for his glory. Man, that's just, it's, it's just an incredible thing. So again, if you want to accuse us of being the rich people's church, then I'll say amen to that. We are the rich people's church, and I want to thank you for being rich, rich in generosity to our great and faithful God. The third teaching on money Jesus shares here with us is you cannot serve both God and money. Verse 13. It's very interesting. At the end of this verse, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. The NIV actually capitalizes the M in money. And why is that? It's because the translators understood here that Jesus was making the point that money can become a God to us. We can treasure it. We can worship it. We can pursue it. And money can become a God to us. And here's the thing, friends. Our God, the true God, he's a jealous God. And he doesn't want to share your devotion with any other gods. He wants your full allegiance. He wants you to worship him alone. And so Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. And so here's the question to ask this morning. Is your money your money or your money? And what I mean by that is, is your money, your money, lowercase m, it's just a resource you've been given to steward, or is your money, your money, uppercase m, a God in your life that you bow down and worship? You see, how you answer that question makes all the difference in the world. Is your money your money, or is it your money? Is it just a resource that we steward, or is it a God you worship? This past week, I had a really cool opportunity. I got to go and visit uh, my friends Mike and Kristen Steffen here at their company over in Osceola, Wisconsin. Mike and Kristen own a company called Cage Innovation, and they have invented this incredible snowplow that's really revolutionizing the whole snowplow industry. And, and just in the last couple of months, they opened up this huge new facility over in Osceola where they're manufacturing these snowplows. And it was really awesome. Mike and Kristen invited me to come over to their annual business meeting uh, because they wanted to dedicate their new facility to the Lord. 
But what was most impressive to me was as I sat through their business meeting, they had about 30 employees there that, that morning, it became very clear to me that the Stephens' priorities in their business were not just simply about the bottom line, but their priorities were to use their business to advance kingdom purposes in the lives of their employees, in the community in which they're a part of, and then to use their resources even beyond to make an eternal impact for the sake of the gospel. And and that came out crystal clear as they shared. I mean, as they talked about their company's core values, all their core values were were rooted in biblical truths, honesty, integrity, sacrifice, commitment, service. I mean, these things were directly rooted in Scripture. And Mike and Kristen, they were upfront and honest with their employees. We do this because it's an act of honoring the Lord. That's what our company's about. We're going to honor Jesus, and we're going to trust that he's going to take care of us. But you know what? This is going to be a kingdom-focused company. I thought, man, that is awesome. Those are people who get it. And and I know that our church is full of people like that. We have people here that are owners of companies. We have people that go and work for others in their companies. But they do because they recognize that their work is an act of service. They are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. When they go to work, they are representing something bigger than just themselves. They're working for something more than just a paycheck. They're working so that they can make an eternal investment in the lives of other people and then use the resources that they gain to make an ongoing kingdom investment. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You cannot serve both God and money. And so, friends, if you want to be truly rich, the first thing Jesus tells us is you need to invest in eternity. Now, the second teaching that Jesus gives us here in terms of experiencing true riches, he says you need to buy into Christ's authority. Buy into Christ's authority, verses 14 through 17. Let's read this passage together. Verses 14 through 17. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. The word sneering there literally means they turned their noses up at Jesus, mocking him, scoffing him. Who do you think you are? Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. In other words, Jesus is saying to these guys, Look, at you're sneering at me. If you only knew... God is sneering at you today. What you prioritize is detestable in God's sight. You got your priorities all wrong, buddy. He goes on to say, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now, how do these last two verses, verses 16 and 17, fit into Jesus' teachings here about money? Well, what you need to understand is that Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking. Okay? He knew their thoughts. And he knew that as they sat there sneering at him, that their fundamental problem was really their unwillingness to embrace his authority. They were questioning Jesus' authority. What right do you have to say such things to us? And so here in verses 16 through 17, Jesus deals with this matter of authority. You see, Jesus here is making the case that God is doing something new, that that a new era has begun. The kingdom of God has arrived with the arrival of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says everyone is forcing his way into it. I mean, what's this talking about? This is the last couple weeks we've been seeing passage after passage. Who are the ones flocking to Jesus? 
It's the sinners, the people who know they need God. They need something more than the self-righteous legalism of the Pharisees. And so Jesus says, look at, they are forcing their way into the kingdom. It's like a Black Friday sale. I mean, they're at the doors, they're pushing their way in. We're tired of this religion and this legalism and all this judgmentalism. And this guy's telling us something we've never heard before. He's speaking life and hope and forgiveness and grace. And so people are forcing their way into the kingdom because they're longing for this. But this logically raised a question for the Pharisees. And Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking. Well, what about the law? What what about the Old Testament, Jesus? Are you usurping the law? Are are you claiming, Jesus, that, that the law isn't relevant anymore? You see, that's what they were thinking. But understand this, friends, the law can't be irrelevant because it was rooted in the very nature and character of God. That's what Jesus is getting at. It would be easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the law to disappear. You can't get rid of the law just because God is doing something new in the world because the law came out of God's nature and character. The moral truths of the law are as valid today as they ever were. And that's what Jesus wants to get at here. But, but here's the deal. While the law isn't irrelevant just because Jesus has arrived on the scene, all right, what you need to understand is that Jesus recognized he needed to clarify his relationship to the law for the Pharisees. And, and, and so here in this passage, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. Here and in other places of the New Testament, we see Jesus explain to us how he relates to the Old Testament law. Passages like Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, understand this, friends. The law was never intended to be a path to salvation. And that's how the Pharisees viewed it. They viewed their keeping of the law, their practicing of the righteous requirements of the law, as an opportunity for them to prove to God how faithful they were. And if they proved to God how faithful they were, then maybe God would admit them into paradise one day. But that's not what the law was ever about. The law was given to highlight our sin and our need for a Savior. The law was given to be a mirror to reflect just how woefully short we fall from the holy standards of God. So when I go to the law and I try to follow the requirements of the law, I quickly realize, man, I am in trouble. I mean, I'm screwed up. If this is God's standard, he expects me to keep this standard. I can't keep that standard. What am I going to do? I need a savior. I need help. And that's what Jesus came to offer us. The Apostle Paul, Romans 3.20, he goes on, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But as the fulfillment of the law, Jesus lived out the moral commands of the law perfectly. And he was thereby our perfect substitute. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He was the spotless Lamb of God. You see, the Pharisees were pinning their hopes on the authority of the law and their faithfulness to the law, but they totally missed the point. Look at John 5.39. Jesus goes on, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
You see, what the Pharisees had missed was that it wasn't the law that possessed the authority over our lives, but it was the one who gave us the law that possessed the authority over our lives. And now here's Jesus on the scene, God in human flesh, proclaiming that the kingdom of God has arrived. He's offering people a real hope for salvation, and the Pharisees were completely blind to it. They sneered at Jesus. Friends, please understand this. When it comes to Jesus and his authority, you'll either sneer him or you'll cheer him. And your choice on that matter makes all the difference. Look what John says in John 1, 10 through 12. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you sneering Jesus or are you cheering Jesus, friends? Because it makes an eternal difference how you view his authority. At this point in our text, Jesus felt the need to make a key point of clarification for everyone listening. And that was the fact that while this new era had arrived with his proclamation of the kingdom, that didn't change the fact that the moral admonitions of the law still mattered. And so in verse 18, Jesus shows us that even in the gospel era, God still calls his people to pursue righteousness. And he highlights this fact by citing as an illustration God's desire for faithfulness in marriage. And this leads us to our third point today. If you want to be truly rich, Jesus says you need to treasure marital fidelity. Look what Jesus says here in verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's a tough passage. And I know, friends, that there are many in this room whose lives have been touched by divorce. Okay, It would be very easy for me as your pastor to just simply pretend this verse wasn't here and skip right over it. But we're going to be faithful to what God has to teach us here. All right, So let's take a look at this. We need to understand how this fits into the overall flow of our passage today. Remember this, friends. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus of usurping the law. But in verse 18, Jesus declares that God actually expects his people, his kingdom people, to go beyond what the law allowed and to strive for God's original intent for marriage, and that is marital fidelity, a lifelong commitment to your spouse. Now, now let's just take a big picture view here real quick. What does the Bible actually teach about marriage and divorce? This is a very quick snapshot, but first and foremost, you need to understand Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. Those are his words, not mine. God says, I hate divorce. Why does God hate divorce? He hates divorce because it's the breaking of a covenant. A covenant which was God's oldest institution in history. The union of one man, one woman in a marriage relationship intended to be lifelong. It's the breaking of that covenant. God also hates divorce because marriage is a reflection of the gospel, according to Ephesians chapter 5. In marriage, we see a living picture of what God has done in his self-sacrificial love for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so divorce is something that God just says he hates it. But we also see that God has made allowances for divorce in Scripture. God has made some allowances for divorce because he recognizes our sin nature. In Matthew 19.8, Jesus says, It was because of of the hardness of your hearts that God allowed for divorce. 
And so God made some exceptions for divorce. He made some very limited exceptions. He said, I will allow divorce in the cases of adultery or in the case of abandonment. Those were the two instances that God said divorce is okay according to Scripture. Very limited. Now, while today is not the occasion to go into all the the fine points on these matters, what we do need to see here today is that Jesus obviously very clearly didn't diminish the moral standards of the law. If anything, he actually raised the bar even higher. And he illustrates this by what he teaches us on marriage. He challenges us as his kingdom people to go beyond the expectations of the law. See, the ethics of the kingdom are about conforming our lives to the heart of God. And so, in essence, what we have here in verse 18 is Jesus saying, sure, there might be exceptions to the law for divorce, but my heart is for fidelity. And I'm calling you to treasure fidelity, too. Now, let me share something with you this morning that could totally revolutionize your understanding of marriage. Okay, understand this. God didn't create marriage to make you happy. He created marriage to make you holy. Let me say that again. God didn't create marriage to make you happy. He created marriage to make you holy. See, marriage is one of the greatest tools of sanctification that God has ever given us. When we come together in a lifelong commitment to our spouse, we learn what it means to practice self-sacrificial love. We learn what it is to serve as Jesus served, to lay down our lives for the sake of another person. That's what marriage is all about. It's about God shaping us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's a tool for developing holiness in our lives. And this is why God calls us to treasure our marriages. How can we treasure our marriage? Let me, let me just give you three simple pieces of advice here. How you can treasure your marriage. All right? And if you'll put these into practice, it could revolutionize your relationship. Number one, practice commitment you got to take the divorce card off the table first and foremost, all right? Here's the deal, friends. As long as you leave the divorce option on the table, I promise you the enemy will continue to use that against you your entire lives. Well, you know, if things don't work out, I can always just pull out the divorce card and start over. Throw the divorce card away, all right? Throw it away. It's not an option. And once you throw the divorce card away, what are you left with? All you're left with is, well, what? we got to keep working at this thing. We got to get help. We got to pursue faithfulness. We got to figure out how to communicate better. We got to work on our conflict resolution. But friends, once you get rid of the divorce card, there's only one direction to go and that's up. Okay? Make that commitment. Secondly, practice self-sacrifice. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, laying down his very life for her. Friends, when two people come together in a committed relationship, practicing mutual self-sacrificial submission, that's when the sparks fly, right? I'm going to lay down my life for my wife just like Jesus laid down his life for me. He gave everything to serve me. I'm going to serve my wife that same way. And you know what? She's going to submit to me out of love because Jesus, we submit to him out of love because of all that he's done for us. When two people practice this mutual self-sacrificial submission, friends, that's where the joy in marriage comes from. I, I once heard somebody say, love is the total commitment to the betterment of another person. What a great idea. 
Love is the total commitment to the betterment of another person. And so when I'm practicing self-sacrificial love, I'm telling my wife, I am totally committed to your betterment. Whatever that means, whatever that takes, whatever that might imply. And, and, and she is doing the same for me. Jason, I'm totally committed to your betterment. And it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun. But you know what? It's safe and it's secure and it's where joy comes from and hope and peace and fulfillment comes from. Commitment, self-sacrifice, thirdly, investment. Friends, understand this. Marriage takes work and it requires ongoing maintenance. Why is it that everything else in our life we just expect is going to require some maintenance, right? Like, like I got to go take my car in every other month for an oil change, and I got to take my lawnmower in the summer and get the blades sharpened, and I got to check the, the pressure in my tires once in a while in the winter, right? Every other thing in our lives requires work and maintenance, and yet when it comes to our marriage, we just expect we're going to show up at the altar, say I do, and everything's going to be rosy from there on out. That's not how it works, okay? It takes commitment, it takes sacrifice, and it takes ongoing investment, just like anything else. So invest in your relationship. Take a marriage class. Go to a marriage retreat. Do a Bible study on marriage together as a couple. Come talk to me as your pastor. Go talk to a Christian counselor who can help you work through those difficulties in your relationship. But everything good in our lives that's worth anything requires investment. And your marriage is no different. Now let me share a word of hope for those of you who've experienced divorce. Because I know there's a lot of you in here this morning. Some of you may have engaged in an unbiblical divorce. That's just the flat-out truth of it. Some of you may be victims of divorce that you never asked for, you never wanted. And what do we have to say to you this morning? Let me just tell you, go back and review the message I shared last week. Who is our Heavenly Father? Who is our great and faithful and loving God? He's the God who welcomes back prodigals, no matter how far they've strayed. He's the God who seeks out lost sheep and lifts them up on his loving shoulders and carries them safely home. And friends, whether you've experienced divorce or whether you've struggled with any other sin in your life, the reality is you have a loving Heavenly Father who is willing to receive you into his arms if you will turn to him and acknowledge your sin, acknowledge the mistakes. And God can bring wholeness back to your life once again. You need to understand this, friends. There is no sin too great to forgive. There is no wound too deep to heal. There is no pain too great for God to overcome. And no matter what you may have experienced in your marriage, and even if it has led to divorce, God can forgive, he can restore, he can set you on a path to life again. Because that's who our God is. He's a faithful God who loves us. And I'll tell you something, friends. What you won't experience from Lakes Free Church is you won't experience self-righteous judgmentalism if you have been touched by divorce. You're not going to experience that from us. Okay, We're going to be honest with you about what the Bible teaches. But if your life's been touched by divorce, you've been wounded and broken because of it, you know what? This is a church where you're safe to come and experience the love of Jesus. Okay, So just make sure people know that. And if you have a problem with that, you're probably not in the right church, okay? Okay, this is a church that welcomes prodigals, welcomes people with pain, welcomes people who have been hurt, okay? Because that's the God we serve.
but we're going to strive for marital fidelity. It's one of the calls that Jesus makes. It's one of the commitments he calls us to live for. And so as a church, we're going to proclaim the goodness of marriage, and we're going to help you in your marriages as best we can. So in conclusion this morning, friends, let me just say this. If you want to be truly rich, true wealth is found when we do life God's way. True life is found when we recognize that our money is not our money. We're just faithful stewards of it. True life and true riches are found when we submit to Christ's authority over all areas of our lives. And true wealth is found, friends, when we honor our marriages and commit to faithfulness in those areas. God will honor you. He'll bless you in that. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage this morning. And even though it is a difficult passage in many ways, it is still true, Lord. And so we embrace this as a gift from you, a word of truth that leads to life and hope and fulfillment. And God, I just pray that you give us the grace to put this into practice, Lord, that we would be faithful stewards of the wealth you've given us, that we would seek to honor you, Jesus, as the authority over all areas of our lives. That includes our money. That includes our marriages. God, help us to invest in our marriages and strive for marital fidelity, Lord, as a way of honoring you. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who just feels broken because of their past, maybe their marriage didn't work out the way they thought it was going to work out, Jesus, I just pray that you would meet them here this morning and remind them that they are loved, they are valued, and you have hope for them for their future. May they turn to you, Jesus, and may they find the good and loving God that you are and the hope for a future. And so, Lord, I just thank you for these passages, even the tough ones. Help us as a church to remain faithful in teaching the whole counsel of God's word. And may we live this out as we go into the world this week. In Jesus' name, amen.